Welcome to Reggae Bridge. Unfortunately, didn't plan to do this, but when people pass away in the reggae genre, it's important, I feel, to pay tribute to them, pay our respects to them, especially when it's people who really gave a lot to what we know of as reggae today. Uh, so unfortunately, in the past week, we lost a couple of heavyweights. We lost... Johnny Nash, who was maybe the first American to play reggae as we know it, and also Bunny Lee. I'm going to start with Bunny Lee. Striker, they called him. They called him Striker because the hits just kept on coming. Everything he touched as a producer hit, 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 hit in the 60s and 70s, especially. Let's go back a little ways. Bunny Lee started his career as a, a record plugger. He was the cat who would go around to record companies with the, the hot new wax and say, in schmooze. He was, a, he was the schmoozer. He was, hey, you know, check this out. He worked for uh, the Treasure Island label, which was run by Duke Reed. And later on, he did the same thing for Leslie Kong. But he'd go around to the radio stations in Jamaica and he'd try to get the latest tracks on the air, um, hopefully leading to hits. From there, he learned how to be an engineer. He basically just hung around the studio, learned how to be an engineer. Then he got into producing, financing his own stuff, and that's when the hits really started rolling for, for Bunny Lee. He had hits with singers like Derek Morgan, um, Max Romeo, Lester Sterling, Delroy Wilson, um, Johnny Clark, Later on, you had a lot of the toasters like you, Roy, and Dennis Al Capone, and even produced Beanie Man's first album when Beanie was like 83, I think. Beanie was like 10 years old, so um, he touched a lot of stuff. But although he was big and you know, made these hits and all this stuff, to me, that's not even the most important stuff that he did. It's what he... It, it, he changed reggae. Multiple times, he added things that became a part of reggae, the sound of reggae, the vibe of reggae. He did it multiple times. I'm going to start with one. Talk about what's known as the flying symbol. A little misleading. Not really a symbol, actually the hi-hat, which is two symbols, one regular and one upside down. Anyway, the hi-hat was really the flying symbol. And it gets that sound. There's, there's that. It's a real, real 70s type of vibe, that chk, chk with the I can't I can't play it for you because Facebook won't let me play it for you they'll shut me down if I play any type of of uh, drum grooves that were performed by other people but it's got that sound with the hi-hats basically like an open quick close thing that's going on with the drummers now the origin of that really goes back some people say well it definitely goes back to ska there's definitely a lot of ska recordings that had that and some people say that they got it from some of the old New Orleans R&B that was, that was coming on the station. We've talked on Reggae Bridge before about a lot of the impact that American radio stations had on Jamaican music. But that aside, um, the flying symbol really took root when Bunny Lee, it was his band, 
his house band, the Agrolites, and the drummer, Santa Davis, who's still, still playing, still a great drummer. Um, there was this tune, I mentioned Johnny Clark earlier. Johnny Clark was probably um, the biggest hit singer associated with Bunny Lee. And they were doing this tune called None Shall Escape the Judgment. And Santa Davis was putting that, that flying symbol hi-hat thing on there. And from there, it kind of took off. Santa didn't invent it. Like I said, it, it was other people. But between him and Bunny Lee, this became huge. Bunny Lee started using that on tons of recordings, and the flying symbol became kind of its own thing. Another thing Bunny Lee did was he really tapped into the UK market. There's a lot of Jamaican um, expatriates or, or, or uh, a lot of the Jamaican diaspora living in England at that time and he really tapped into that market he tapped into that West Indies market and was shipping his records over there and they became hits in the UK so he was the first one to really tap into that UK market and the other thing he did which is st it's still the case today it's still how things are, are are done today is he was the first cat to really use different voices over the same rhythm the same backing track basically and you hear that a lot today where there's even out al there's albums still today where it's like you'll see it and it'll say the something rhythm the you know the whatever the, the cali roots rhythm or whatever where you'll have 12 different singers doing 12 different lyrics and melodies completely different lyrics and melodies but over the same backing track and bunny lee really started that and it was a great idea because as a producer you save money right you save money on the band records at one time and you get different singers in to do a whole bunch of different hits with the same thing plus if it's a hit the first time it's familiar to everyone so the the second the second one is likely to take off and the third one and so on so you're saving money you've got familiarity it's actually a brilliant business move and the other thing King Tubby was deeply involved in, I'm sorry, I said King Tubby. The other thing Bunny Lee was deeply involved in was in the creation of dub along with King Tubby. That's where the King Tubby comes from. Sorry about that. They were friends. They, they worked together. And dub really became, and, and uh, you know, Bunny described it as they were working on a tune. It came, came by accident. They were working on a tune. And the singer was off key so they dropped his voice out and they're like well that's kind of cool and they dropped the other instruments out and just kind of left drums and bass and from there it took off and they made it all spacey and crazy and this amazing almost this this amazing sub form of music that came out of roots reggae was born in dub and just to de define dub what what true dub really is is you take a song that already exists and you, you have the tracks there and you start taking pieces in and out, maybe moving them around, adding different sound effects and stuff like that. So dub isn't really a ground up thing. Uh, dub is a top down. That really doesn't matter because then there's still the dub sound that we know of with the deep bass and the drums, lots of reverb, lots of echo. And I can't imagine like, like I did, we, we did a dub EP, Street Level in Dub, and uh, which is free by the way, streetleveluprising.com slash seven, you can get it for free. Anyway, um, and in our tune seems on the sunshine music album there's the second half of that tune is dub so i i've done plenty of dub but it's easy for me because it's all digital like i can't imagine these cats back in the 70s were doing this with the big old uh machines the echoplex machines and the giant spring reverb and and stuff like the big the big reverb plates all that stuff and they were doing all this stuff 
it's all on tape and it's all timing and you know delaying the delaying the tapes to get a, a flanging effect all this stuff that they had to do from scratch right there all analog as it was going on unbelievable that they that they could pull it off that they thought of it that they invented it so bunny lee's contributions to reggae the things i mentioned opening up the uk market being a part of the origins of dub being the first cat to take the different backing tracks and use them for different singers um the flying symbol his contribution contributions bunny lee's contributions were bigger than just as a hit maker like a lot of producers he really added a lot to the sound invented a lot and the coolest thing about Bunny Lee to me was what a nice, kind human being he was. He went out of his way to help people. He tried to facilitate deals between conflicting entities. He was just a great human being. Check out uh, I Am The Gorgon, uh, Bunny Striker Lee, and The Roots of Reggae. It really tells a lot about his involvement with <clears throat> this, uh, this evolution of reggae that happened in the late 60s and on through the 70s and beyond. So that's Bunny Striker Lee, producer, uh, visionary. That's a good word, right? Visionary. He was a reggae visionary. And um, just, just a great human being and a great part of reggae history. So rest in peace, rest in power, Bunny Striker Lee. The next tribute I want to pay this evening is to Johnny Nash. Johnny Nash also passed away last week, I believe at the age of 80. And um, Johnny was... He was really the first American to have what we would think of as a reggae hit. Uh, some people say, it was funny, I was reading this thing because I was curious. I was like, well, was Johnny Nash the first American to have a hit, you know, reggae, a reggae feel, reggae vibe hit on U.S. radio? And, you know, some people say, well, you know, Red Red Wine, Neil Diamond came out in 67. Well, Neil Diamond's original version wasn't reggae. It was it became reggae later on. It's been recorded. Reggae versions have been recorded by other bands, including UB40's famous hit. And Neil, sometimes today when he performs Red Red Wine, does UB40's arrangement, which I think is super cool. But it was a ballad when he came out with it in 67. It wasn't a reggae tune. In 68 was when Johnny Nash had his hit. Let's back up a little bit. Johnny Nash in the 50s and 60s was a pop and R&B singer in the US, had some hits, got into acting, a successful actor as well. Just, a, just one of these like charismatic, do-it-all uh, people who, who kinda you know, make you sick or make you angry because they're just so darn talented uh, while the rest of us out here are just scraping by trying to do what we can do. So 1965, he moves to Jamaica along with his manager, Danny Sims, and they set up Cayman Publishing. They liked Jamaica because you could record there really cheap, um, which good for them, good for the singers that they, would, that, that they would bring down from the States to record, not so great for the Jamaican musicians, but that's another story. So they're down there in Jamaica, they're living there, they set up Cayman Publishing, and they go and see the Whalers. This was like 67 or 68. They see the Whalers for the first time, Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, Bunny Whaler, and sign them to a publishing contract. I think it was like 
50 bucks a week, something like that, but this small publishing contract. So Johnny Nash was working with the Whalers from early on, and he, he worked with them, and Danny Sims represented them on some of the early stuff. So not so much once uh, Island and Chris Blackwell came into the picture, Danny Sims and Johnny Nash weren't there anymore, but the early Whalers. They founded uh, JAD Records, which was with Johnny and, and Danny Sims founded JAD Records, not the Whalers. And Johnny was still recording his own stuff, and he recorded a rock steady tune called Hold Me Tight. This, 1968, is what's typically thought of as the first reggae tune by an American artist, first reggae tune to have a hit on the air, although it was more rock steady than reggae. Whatever, maybe we're just splitting hairs. Johnny Nash was the first one to really bring that sound to the American airwaves. So he had that hit with Hold Me Tight. 1971, he did a cover of Stir It Up by Bob Marley and had a hit with that. And, and in fact, I used to work at a supermarket when I was a teenager and on the Muzak, that, that tune, you know, it wasn't Muzak Muzak where you had the, 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 the instrumental versions. It was whatever music they were piping in. Actually, they had Johnny Nash's version of Stir It Up on there. He had a hit. That was 71. The next year, he had a hit with the song that he might be most famous for, certainly is for me, 1972, I Can See Clearly Now. Uh, huge, huge song. Heard everywhere for 47 years now. And Jimmy Cliff covered it in 1993. It was on the Cool Running soundtrack, and he had a hit with it. In fact, my, my memory of Jimmy Cliff's version is... Uh, I worked with this dude is talking about working at a supermarket. I worked produce and this dude, Sal, um, he, uh, he asked me one day, he's like, yo, can I borrow your car? Run down to the credit union. I was like, sure. Gave him the keys. Well, he disappeared. And, um, I was getting mad because, um, I figured, you know, figured out what happened. Unfortunately, the dude was a junkie, borrowed my car, went down to Miami as I was living in Florida, went down to Miami to score and, I was getting mad. I was just sitting there getting mad. It was almost my time to go home, and my car hadn't come back yet. Three hours later, I was mad, and uh, the dude walked in, and I was like ready to confront him, but he, he came up to me. He's like, man, I'm sorry. He tossed me my keys, and he's like, he's like, I can't do this no more. He's like, I, I got to get out of this. Went in, talked to the boss, and told the boss, yo, I got a problem. I need to go to rehab. Dude went to rehab, and like that was his rock bottom moment was like stealing my car. But I always think of, of that dude, Sal, when I hear I can see clearly now because he didn't like that tune. He didn't like Johnny Nash's version. He didn't like Jimmy Cliff's version. And I used to just delight in irritating him by singing it uh, all the time. But that's that's my associate, association with that tune is this dude, Sal, that I wanted to fight because he stole my car. But I, it was it was actually his rock bottom moment. So then I felt bad about wanting to fight him. But yeah, I was like 19 or something. So long time ago, water under the bridge. But for some reason, that's what I can see clearly now makes me think of. Um, Johnny Nash gave a lot to really opened up. I mean, you know, obviously Bob hit in the U.S., pretty hard, especially with the, the rock audience, really hit them hard. But I don't know, you know, maybe, and and people soften it up for him, though. You know, Eric Clapton's version of I Shot the Sheriff softened up the U.S. rock market for Bob Marley. Uh, and I can see clearly now and hold me tight and um, Johnny Nash's cover of Stir It Up, that stuff really helped to soften the American market, I think, for reggae. So definitely deserves... A lot of respect. 
he deserves those props for saying, hey, this is a great sound. I'm going to bring it back to my country and show everybody how wonderful this is and show everybody all these artists down there in Jamaica. It's bubbling. The amount of talent on this little island is just going to explode and be the coolest thing the world has ever heard. Rest in peace, Johnny Nash. Rest in power. Um, check out Johnny Nash, all those tunes I mentioned, um, because there's, there's, some, there's some great stuff there and the great stuff about what he did for reggae. Now, speaking of me doing things when I'm younger and being older now, here's what happened a couple days ago. So I put out on Facebook, tell me some people that you'd want me to, to cover, you know, do to profile on Reggae Bridge. And my man Eric says, hit me with the Peter Tosh. So I'm thinking, shoot, I did Peter Tosh way back early in the first season, right? Let me go back and find that video for Eric. I'll drop him the link. You know, here's Peter Tosh, whatever, right? Nah. So I go back through all these videos and there's no Peter Tosh. And I think, holy moly, how have I not done Peter Tosh? Well, what I did was I, I had a memory of covering Peter Tosh on Reggae Bridge. But that's not what happened. What happened was I've had previous shows that I've done on Facebook where I've covered Peter Tosh, but not on Reggae Bridge. So all this time, I've been thinking I've already done Peter Tosh, and now here I am halfway through season two thinking Peter Tosh is one of my top three all time. How in the world have I not covered Peter Tosh yet? So I owe Peter Tosh and everyone who loves Peter Tosh a huge, humongous, ridiculous, out of this world apology for being so foolish as to not handle Peter Tosh way back. I'm sorry, it was not me, it was my faulty memory. So let's get into Peter Tosh, right? Like I said, he's one of my top three. Like if I'm gonna say, like Bob Marley, obviously everyone, right? Steel Pulse and Peter Tosh. Those two connect with me the most because of their consciousness, the, the, the militant consciousness that they have. And, and Peter Tosh was, was talk about militant consciousness, that's, that's what the cat was. Peter, uh, you know, his, his real, real last name, Macintosh, shortened it to Tosh later on, Macintosh started off, as a young man, went to Joe Higgs. I talked about Joe Higgs a couple weeks ago. Joe Higgs was a guy who taught a lot of Jamaican singers how to sing, how to perform, how to harmonize. And he did it for free. He gave free lessons to the youth. So Tosh went to him, learned how to sing and, and perform and harmonize and all that. Joe Higgs put him together with two other youngsters, Bob Marley and Bunny Whaler. Maybe you've heard of them. So the three start, they, they link up for the first time in 1962, which is crazy when you think of like Catch a Fire comes out in 73. I think it was 73, and that's, that's when they really, you know, on the map is Bob Marley and the Whalers as we know them. And they, they had been singing together for over 10 years. Well, no wonder that album's so great. And you go back and listen to the early Whalers stuff and you really hear it was a vocal trio, those harmonies. So <laughs> Joe Higgs got them together and they harmonize, harmonize, harmonize. A lot of that stuff came from American doo-wop, a lot of that, the harmonies that they would work on back then. Well, Tosh allegedly also taught Bob Marley how to play guitar. Now, I don't think Bob ever confirmed that, but Bunny Whaler does say that it was Tosh who taught them how to play instruments. You know, he taught himself to play guitar, play keys, whatever, and taught them how to play. So musical prodigy on the instruments, I imagine. So you know about his time with Bob Marley and the Whalers. I talked about that way back in last season. I know I did that. So I'm focusing on 
Peter's solo career. He leaves Bob Marley and the Whalers in 1974. Some people say he was uh, envious of the fact that it was Bob Marley and the Whalers and that Bob was really getting the spotlight because Peter was writing some great tunes too. He co-wrote Get Up, Stand Up with Bob. He wrote 400 Years. He wrote You Can't Blame the Youth. So he felt like the three of them, they started this, this trio. We're, we're one, we're a team, we're a band. And it was Island Records who made it Bob Marley and the Whalers. So a lot of people say Peter didn't like that. Peter was jealous, envious, whatever. Uh, so, some say it was because he had a solo album that he was trying to do and Chris Blackwell of Island Records wouldn't let him do a solo album because he wanted to keep the Whalers, whatever. Peter left in 74. 1976, he releases Legalize It. We all know that tune. That was on the album called Legalize It. That was with Island Records. Wasn't happy with them. Went, went with Rolling Stones Records. Um, Keith Richards had a place in Jamaica. He kind of stumbled onto Peter Tosh, loved him, told Mick Jagger and Rolling Stones Records, partnered with him, signed him, whatever, along with CBS. 1977, he releases the Equal Rights album, which had his version, his full version of Get Up, Stand Up on there. Peter, from what I understand, Peter wrote the third verse of Get Up, Stand Up, which is why on the original Bob Marley and the Whalers version, that's Peter's voice singing the third verse, but he did the, the full version of the tune himself solo on the Equal Rights album in 1977. Another tune on there that was big, uh, Stepping Razor, which was a cover of a song written by Joe Higgs. A lot of people think Peter wrote Steppin' Razor, but he didn't. It was a Joe Higgs tune, but Peter certainly made it his own and absolutely killed with it. 1978, Bush Doctor came out with uh, the title track on there is one of my favorite Peter Tosh songs. He also did a duet with Mick Jagger on uh, Walk and Don't Look Back, which is a cover of Don't Look Back by The Temptations. Um, a lot of people have heard that. If you haven't, checked that out. It's a fun tune. It's weird. It's kind of weird and kind of poppy. Hearing Peter's deep baritone on there with, with Mick's English thing, but still pretty cool to hear. Also in 1978, Peter played the One Love Peace concert. Now, most people, if you know about that concert, you know about it because um, Bob had been in exile after the assassination attempt on his life, played this, uh, played this One Love Peace concert, got, I think during jamming, got the... Prime Minister and his biggest opponent, that's Michael Manley and Edward Siega, got them to, you know, shake hands on stage and lift them up like this. And if you've ever wanted to see two really uncomfortable people, go check out the One Love Peace concert when these two political opponents had to join hands. Bob made them join hands on stage. There's some uncomfortable smiles on that stage. These cats were not feeling real comfy about that. They didn't like each other, even though I think they were cousins or something, but whatever. That's mostly what the One Love Peace concert is known for. But maybe the second biggest story from that was Peter on stage lighting and smoking a spliff, which was a very big deal. You know, we, we like to think that we're rebels these days, right? Get up on stage, smoke a spliff, some of us, and feel like, oh, I'm being a rebel. Well, Peter was a serious rebel. That's some stuff that was not done back then. And Peter did it. It was a major act of defiance. I thought it was cool when I was a kid and Cypress Hill was on stage with that four-foot bong. Well, Peter Tosh, what he did was a major act of rebellion, and it got him an ass-whooping. 
A few months later, some plainclothes cops grabbed him as he was coming out of a, a dance hall and took him downtown and beat him within an inch of his life because they didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like him flaunting that, doing it in people's faces. So for an act of rebellion like that, there were major consequences. And Peter was not apologetic. He was going to do what he was going to do. And there's a lot of respect you have to have, not for him just as an artist, but as a man for being willing to take that kind of heat at a time where no one wanted to take that kind of heat. People don't want to take that kind of heat today. He took that kind of heat in 1978 when no one was doing that stuff. People weren't even talking about Herb. Here he is out on stage. Boom. Got beat down for it. 1979, Peter releases the Mystic Man album. 1981, Wanted, Dreader Alive. 1983, Mama Africa. Went on a bit of a spiritual excursion in 1984. And in 1987, he released his last album, No Nuclear War, which just the title of that album is fantastic, right? No Nuclear War. What a great sentiment. And if you're, if you're young today, if you didn't catch the tail end of the Cold War like I did, it was pretty heavy time, even in 1987. No Nuclear War was a huge statement. Nobody wants the whole freaking world to be wiped out by a bunch of posturing fools in the White House and the Kremlin, right? Unfortunately, that same year, 1987, uh, during a home invasion, most people say robbery. It was a robbery. It was a, a setup. People were trying to get money from him. And P Peter had been, you know, paying people off, trying to keep people cool who would come after him for money. As you know, a man of his status, people would try to shake him down and stuff. And uh, you know, one day there was a home invasion, and they tried to rob him, and. Whatever the details, unfortunately, it ended with uh, Peter Tosh being shot and killed. I mentioned Santa Davis earlier when we were talking about Bunny Lee. Santa Davis, the drummer, was playing with Peter at the time, and he was actually in the house, and he was shot but survived. And there was at least one other person that was killed along with Peter in that home invasion. But it's, uh, it's a damn shame to lose... Someone like that, someone of that importance, and especially always losing anyone to murder is the damned worst thing in the world, but um, it's a tragedy to lose Peter Tosh that way. Senseless, foolish, just foolish, just, fool, just stupid people with guns take loved ones away, famous and otherwise, and um, it needs to end, and Peter Tosh was just one more example of why this stuff needs to end. So... Let's talk a couple things about Peter Tosh, what he stood for, what he brought to reggae. One thing he brought to reggae, you're talking about, you know, visionaries, revolutionary things, things that are brought to reggae, added to reggae. His band, Word, Sound, and Power, Sly and Robbie. That was his rhythm section. That was when nobody really knew who Sly and Robbie was. Sly and Robbie was Peter's rhythm section and all, and all the production and, and stuff that they played on since then. I, mean, I can't imagine Peter Tosh... Sly and Robbie on, uh, on drums and bass. And Al Anderson, who had played lead guitar, some lead guitar for Bob Marley. He was in that band too. Just this great band that Peter Tosh had and played on a lot of his recordings and also played on at the One Love Peace concert we were talking about earlier. Peter was unapologetic for being extremely spiritual 
it is impossible to talk about Peter without talking about Rastafari, without... It was, it was such a part... It, it is who you are. Rastafari is who you are. It's just not what you do, not what you into. Rastafari is who you are. Rastafari is liberty. Rastafari is life. And a lot of... Peter was one of the first ones to really put a lot of Rasta speak, a lot of Rasta terms and the way... Um, altering of words put a lot of that stuff in it you know like overstand instead of understand and and um livicated instead of dedicated things like that put a lot of that in his lyrics at a time where other reggae artists weren't really doing that they were trying to speak more uh common english or some patois but not a lot of ross to speak in there and again he was pretty bold with that and his his consciousness a militant consciousness that i love so much i think the great reggae historian Roger Steffens, I think he said he's counted uh, nine love songs, nine romantic songs in the entire Peter Tosh catalog that I just went over a few minutes ago, and that's not much. So real heavy on militant uh, consciousness, real heavy on the spirituality of Rastafari. And a fun fact about Peter Tosh, he was a really good unicyclist, which seems pretty crazy to me. I've, I've seen the... If you ever check out uh, Stepping Razor Red X, which is a 1993 documentary of Peter Tosh. It was done. I got a deluxe DVD version a few years ago for my birthday. That's, I just love. It's got that. It came with a disc of, you know, unreli- I don't know. It came with, it's a big deluxe package, came with a lot of stuff, but the Peter Tosh documentary is great. But yeah, he, he was a like a an unbelievable unicyclist. He'd come out on stage with that, just ride the unicycle out on stage, which is unbelievable uh, another fun fact about peter tosh he had a guitar made uh in the shape of, a, of an m16 so uh yeah pretty pretty militant there key peter tosh tracks i've named a few right um i named uh uh well the tunes he did with the whalers like get up stand up 400 years you can't blame the youth i named uh step and razor equal rights and a few others. Let's go. Let, let's just go down it through a bunch, right? Bush Doctor. And again, when I say key tracks from Peter Tosh, I'm talking about my favorites. Bush Doctor, Mama Africa, I Am That I Am, Equal Rights, Feel No Way. Hey, equal, let me back up. Equal Rights, Everyone is Crying Out for Peace, None are Crying Out for Justice. That's something I can identify with. I'm tired of hearing people say, please, can we just have peace? without there being justice and equality first. Now, you can't have no peace without justice and equality. No one said that better than Peter Tosh. Feel No Way, um, I love that tune. Pick Myself Up, Vampire, Downpressor Man, um, African, uh, Burial. Oh, Burial's another one. I've always wanted to cover that tune. Someday I'm going to have to talk street level into covering uh, Burial. Um, I'm the toughest. I love that one. I also love Luciano's version of "I'm the toughest." Anything that uh, anything that you can do, I can do it better. I'm the toughest. Um, and Johnny B. Good, he he's got this smoking cover of Johnny B. Good that you can hear, especially if you catch a live version. I think there's a live version of him doing Johnny B. Good on that Step and Razor documentary deluxe thing that has like a a full uh, a concert a lot of concert footage on a second dvd or something i don't know but those are some of peter tosh's key tracks and like i said about bunny lee johnny nash 
Rest in peace, Peter. Rest in power, Peter. That's Peter Tosh. I am Jay from Street Level Uprising. My time is up because you've heard me talk enough. I'll be back one week from tonight. Always Tuesdays, evenings, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. And I'll be talking about more artists on Reggae Bridge to form this Reggae Bridge that we know past, present, and I'll be back. One love. Want to know more about Street Level Uprising or keep up with my goofiness? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you dug Reggae Bridge and want to watch it happen live, check out Facebook or Instagram Tuesday evenings at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. Did you know that you could get our dub EP absolutely free? Just go to streetleveluprising.com slash seven. That's the number seven. This EP is not available anywhere else. You won't hear it on Spotify. You won't be able to buy it on CD at one of our shows. This EP is just to thank you for your support and features dub versions of seven Street Level Uprising tunes. Check us out on Spotify or Apple Music to hear all three of our studio albums. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Talkin' Reggae. I hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll talk again soon.